Hi, I'm Lance. Welcome to Fill the Boot, a podcast with tips and advice for founders and interviews with authorities in entrepreneurship. You can also get all these episodes as a blog from feeltheboot.com or at the Feel the Boot YouTube channel. Today, I want to talk about how I overcame my science and engineering habits and prejudices to become effective at both sales and marketing. Selling doesn't come naturally to most technical founders. In fact, it often is treated as a bit of a bad word. We don't like being sold to, and in general, we don't like selling. However, it is one of the core responsibilities of any founder. When you're starting a company, you're going to be selling all the time in all kinds of contexts. And if you're gonna be successful, you need to be good at it. I wanna help you by sharing a mental framework that I developed for approaching sales and marketing that worked at least with my technical scientific brain. In fact, it worked well enough that when my company was sold and I became chief scientist of the acquiring company, they had the marketing department report to me too. First off, I want to tackle this aversion among engineers and technologists to sales and selling. Now, when I talk about sales, I'm not talking about those kind of high pressure used car salesman tactics. We're talking about making a presentation or content to persuade an audience. And as a founder, you're going to be selling a lot. Obviously, you're going to be selling your product itself to whatever customers you've got, either mass consumers or individual businesses. But you'll also be selling the value of your company to investors when you're trying to raise money. You'll be selling your company to potential employees, convincing them how great it'll be to work for you and potentially have a profitable outcome. You'll be selling PR companies and media outlets on the quality of the story about your company. All kinds of contexts will involve your needing to have a persuasive selling approach to convince people to do the things you need them to do for your company to grow. And you really have to be selling. You can't just put your information out there and hope it will have an effect. It's not a build it and they will come kind of situation. Or put another way, hope is not a strategy. Try to let go of your resistance and commit to selling in all of these contexts. It took me a long time to embrace the idea that I didn't need to be even-handed. As an engineer, I'm always tempted to try to show the pros and cons of any issue, to be fair and unbiased. But when you're selling, you're not unbiased. Plenty of other people are going to be happy to make the case against what you're trying to convince people to do. So you need to be comfortable directly advocating for what you want. Again, you don't want to be bragging, you don't want to be using hyperbole, you don't want to be using exaggeration or, God forbid, lies. But have the confidence to go out there and say what is good about the thing you're doing. The first big idea in this framework is that humans are emotional monkeys. Now, as engineers and technologists, we're trained to use logic. It's one of the best tools in our toolbox, and we use it everywhere all the time. And I tried to use it when I was selling. Rather than trying to persuade people, I tried to effectively argue them into using Anonymizer. I'd lay out the entire case, and if someone didn't buy based on that, I'd wonder, what, are they just not smart enough to understand this brilliant argument that I'm making? And so I decided what was really key was going to be to teach them so that they could appreciate and understand the argument I was making about my product. To the surprise of very few people, this worked even worse. It would 
be so off-putting. People don't appreciate being lectured at when you're talking to them. It puts you in an authority position with respect to your customer, and that makes the whole relationship antagonistic, and things just spiral down from there. Once I finally accepted the reality of our species' emotion-based approach to most decision-making, everything improved. Now, adopting this approach may require a major shift in your attitude towards the entire sales process. But most people, in fact, make decisions emotionally. Once they've developed an emotional attachment to an outcome, they'll often use logic to then try to build an argument to support the decision that, in fact, they've really already made. Now, the two most commonly used emotions that you see in all kinds of advertising are fear and a desire for status. Fear is the thing that we see all the time. The best example is probably in security products. Right? Anytime you see a new antivirus or a new anti-firewall or system monitoring tool, it's always being sold in the context of, if you don't get this, then the bad guys are gonna come in, they're gonna hack your system, they're gonna wreck your business, and so you need to get this to be protected. But it could just as well be, say, a healthcare product. If you don't keep your teeth clean and use our special tooth whitening product, then you'll be unattractive to the opposite sex. Still a fear message. If you don't do A, then something bad will happen to you. Like fear, desire for status is almost universal among primates. We don't own fancy cars because they drive 10 or 20 times better than some less expensive model, we buy them because how they reflect on us, how people think about us when we're going by in that vehicle. Similarly, a $5,000 brand name handbag doesn't hold stuff any better than a $5 bag does, but people carry them because they want to be seen as the kind of person who has the taste to buy and the money to afford these kinds of things. It says something about who you are, what groups you belong to, where you fit in society. And a huge number of products are sold, at least in part, with these kind of appeals to status. When I was selling cyber stealth technology to the national security community, I tried to instill four different emotions in my audience every time I went into a sales pitch. Now, these were very mission-oriented people. They cared deeply about their mission. So the first emotion I wanted to create was excitement about the possibility of doing their mission in a more effective way, having greater impact on the purpose that they were trying to achieve. The second emotion I went after was ambition. I tried to emphasize the degree to which implementing this solution would make them look like heroes within their organizations, increasing their status and chances of promotion. I tried to inspire trepidation in the audience about their ability to implement this themselves. Our biggest competitor at the time was an internal team doing a build-it-yourself type solution. So if I could create fear in them that that was a dangerous thing to do because of the monumental complexity of the solutions we were providing, they're far more likely to outsource it. And then finally, I drew on our track record of accomplishment and the experience of the team to instill confidence in the audience that we were the people that they should turn to to achieve this goal. So they're excited about their mission, they're ambitious personally and excited about how this is going to help their career, they're worried about doing it themselves, and they feel like we're the people who can achieve all of this for them. Now, I used a lot of facts and information to back that up, but 
if I got all of those emotions going in the audience, the odds that they would move to the desired outcome that I had starting a pilot project with us was much, much higher. The next idea is to clarify the purpose of your communications. When you start a business, probably some of the first things you're going to be doing is creating a website, creating documents around your products, product spec sheets, things like that. But why? I mean, you might think to yourself, well, obviously I need a website. Obviously I need product documentation and things like that. But it's important to understand very specifically the intended purpose and audience of that particular document. So let's say you're creating a spec sheet for a product. Is this something that you're going to leave a pile of in a coffee shop for anyone to come through and pick up? In which case, you're really introducing yourself to someone who has no idea who you are. So you need to start from that position and understand that that's the headspace your reader is in. Whereas you might be creating a sheet that you're going to leave behind at the end of a sales pitch. So after an hour talking to this person about your solutions and how they apply to that company, you're going to leave this with them as a reminder of the points you made and possibly as a way for them to carry that same message to other people in the organization that you didn't get a chance to talk to directly. Well, obviously those are going to be very different documents. So understand clearly who is the audience and what are you trying to accomplish? What, what outcomes do you want? And I think of those outcomes specifically as what do you want the audience to think, feel, and do? You've defined who this person is. You know exactly where their head's at and what their kind of demographic profile is. You've got a model of them. Now, what's the outcome? And you want to think about all three of these because it really helps you shape the materials or even the message in a one-to-one -one meeting. So what do you want them to think? about you at the end of this, right? In my case, I wanted people to think that we would be well-suited to deliver these internet stealth technologies, that they could rely on us to successfully implement the program, right? That's an academic, rational, conceptual thought. How did I want them to feel? Well, we talked about that. I wanted them to feel ambitious, excited, trepidatious, and confident. I want to get all of those emotions going. And what did I want them to do? I wanted them to agree to launch a pilot program so we could get our foot in the door to start a land and expand program in this new section of the government. In any given meeting or piece of content or web page, try to keep those objectives tightly focused. You can't try to boil the entire ocean, primarily because people won't remember very much. After a week, you're lucky if people remember three things that you might have told them. So if in a presentation you make 50 points, it's really key that 47 of those be simply there supporting the three ideas you want them to remember later. Now, one of the nice things about going for emotion is emotion tends to last much longer. Even if I've lost all the information you've given me in my mental fog weeks and weeks later, the fact that I felt good about you, that I was excited about working with you, is likely to last and will cast a positive halo over everything else I read from you and every other interaction we have. So getting those emotional tones right means that the next communication you have is received in a different way than your first one. The next concept is communicating from your customer's perspective. Now, when I started Anonymizer, I often used myself as a model for my customers because I think a lot of us do, we know what we like really well. And so it's very easy to extrapolate what that means for communications or for a product. 
And the impact of this was that I built a version of Anonymizer that had incredible amounts of detail and fine-grained control. I could adjust exactly what any given page within a certain website could see about me on many different kinds of axes and types of information. It was wonderful. I loved being able to get in there and noodle with it and achieve precisely the privacy profile that I wanted. Unfortunately, the customers hated it. They didn't engage with this at all. They never used any of those controls. In fact, all they ever did was turn it on, do their thing, turn it off when they were done. And so when we finally realized this and smacked ourselves on the head, we redesigned the product all the way down to having only one control. When you wanted to be private, you turned it on. When you wanted to be not private, you turned it off. And it took care of everything else. The customers liked it way more. Sales went way up. We were much more successful. And I learned a really important lesson. I am not a good model for my customers. So unless you're selling to other engineers with a very similar kind of approach to you, maybe even then, you don't want to look at yourself as a model for the people who are going to be buying your product. Take the time to talk to them and understand where they're coming from, what they need, why they care about this, and make sure everything you say is pitched towards them. One of the ways this manifests is that as engineers, we tend to focus on the features and technologies in our solutions rather than the ways they benefit your customers. And thinking in terms of benefits is always better. Your customer doesn't really want to know what's under the hood. They want to know, how does this help me? Does it save me money? Does it save me time? Does it prevent pain, create pleasure, let me achieve something that I've always wanted to do but was very difficult before? Those are the kind of things I want to know. Maybe later you can talk to me about how you actually achieve them. But the way to hook me is convince me that it creates some outcome that I really desire. Because I see this features instead of benefits problem so often, I think it might be helpful to give a couple of examples. So this time I'm gonna use as an example a company that I invested in, I'm on the board. This is the company that makes the smart pet collars and an associated mobile app. Now, it's got a ton of cool features, one of which is that it's got super fast and accurate GPS for locating the pet. But fast GPS for locating my pet isn't something that I care about. It's a feature. What I care about, the benefit, is that wherever I am in the world, I know my pet's at home and safe. And if they're not, I can find them quickly and bring them back to safety. It also has a marketplace, so you can order supplies from different suppliers all built into the app. But no one cares about a marketplace. I'm not getting this because I want a marketplace. The benefit to me would be that this app automatically tracks the pet's activity and feeding schedules so that it tells me when I'm about to run out of something, when I need some new medicine or I need to order some new food. And with one tap, I can immediately make that happen. It's just an easy button for dealing with my pet's needs, and I can instantly see why that would be a useful thing for me to have. Finally, it has sophisticated activity tracking. So it can see, is your dog getting up? Are they moving around? What temperature is it in the room? It's got environmental sensors as well, and that helps with monitoring the health of your pet. But monitoring and sensors, again, not a benefit a pet owner is looking for. What does the pet owner want? The pet owner wants their fur baby to be happy and healthy. And that's what they're trying to deliver. So when you're thinking about your product, try to always frame 
what you're talking about in terms of how this benefits the customer. Even when you're talking about comparisons to other companies, don't get drawn into talking about feature versus feature. Always talk about how the way your product is better improves the outcome for the customer. And that's gonna be the way to grab them. Focusing on benefits rather than features even applies to visuals. Rather than showing high resolution screenshots of your user interface, if you show pictures of a happy customer interacting with your solution, it will be far more effective. The last big concept is that aesthetics matter. The soft side of marketing is really critical. When it comes to conveying ideas or instilling emotions, the words you choose have a surprisingly small impact. In the case of giving an in-person presentation, either a talk or a sales pitch, it turns out that, in studies, numbers vary a little bit, but roughly 55% of the impact that you're gonna have on your audience comes from the visual characteristics of the presentation. Primarily, you, your energy, the way you move, the way you look, the way you dress, uh, your posture, right? all those visual cues carry about 55% of the weight. 38% comes from the tone, how you deliver it, how your voice sounds, how you're pacing, the energy in your voice, the way you emphasize certain information and de-emphasize other information. And what's left over, about 7% of the impact comes from the particular words you choose. That's kind of disturbing to an engineer like me. I like to think that the words I choose, the arguments I make are gonna be hugely impactful, but it turns out it really isn't. And this applies not just to presentations, but to all communications. So paying attention to the kind of visuals you use and the tone and the layout and the structure of these documents is at least as important as the content of the arguments and the case that you make inside of it. For example, when I see a pitch deck, if it's really polished, it has nice visuals that reinforce the points that the CEO is making, it gives me confidence in the company. It makes me feel like they're really buttoned up. They know what they're doing. They have experience in doing sales, running this kind of business before, and it makes me much more likely to invest. As opposed to if they've got a really kind of clunky, uh, deck, it's mostly text, the graphics don't flow together, the color schemes are kind of clashing. Even though it's subconscious, it makes me think, wow, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're clearly kind of amateurs. They don't know how to focus on quality and polish. And if they're doing this pitch to me, how are they going to be selling to everyone else, right? It puts a negative pall over everything they're doing. And so if the two same companies come in, one with a good deck, one with a bad deck, no question it's going to the good deck. But in fact, it carries a lot of weight. The company with a better deck might actually be substantially worse than the company with a bad deck and still they're the ones who are going to get the investment because of the emotional halo that that sense of quality instills. Steve Jobs was the undisputed master of these kinds of presentations. In fact, people who saw him talk in person described feeling a reality distortion field. If he was pitching some new Apple product, even if in fact it wasn't that exciting or that innovative, he did such a good job of lushly describing what a wonderful experience it would be to have and use this phone, software, whatever it was, that people would come out of that presentation slathering to get to that demo room, to get their hands on it, to get a chance to buy it. Intellectually, they knew it wasn't all that, 
but they felt this huge desire to be a part of that thing, to have that experience, to have the status that a lot of Apple products conveyed, especially early on. Another important soft technique is communicating with narrative. We are storytelling monkeys, and our brains work much better with stories than they do with raw facts. So when I see pitches, a lot of them start off with, okay, here's some information about a problem. Here's some information about the size of the market. And here's some information about how we're going to address it. That's very standard and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's far more effective if they say, imagine this person, Sally. And Sally is trying to accomplish this thing, but she runs into this big problem and gets really frustrated and can't achieve this goal that she has. And it's quite obvious, by the way, I've described Sally, that she's part of an extremely large population of people, which establishes the market size. And then I say, but imagine Sally with our Wonder Widget. And so now Sally is trying to achieve this thing, but she has our product. And here's how she interacts with it to achieve this outcome, this benefit that she strongly desires. And that story is going to stick with me much better than those unrelated facts. And I get this sort of emotional high from being able to connect to the story and the su success of this person. When you're selling, if you can make your customer the hero of the story, even better, because now they become personally and emotionally invested in what you're talking about. They're picturing themselves sitting there, achieving these things, having these objectives. And that is the most powerful way of attaching your solution to their emotions. So in conclusion, all of this advice really boils down to embracing the reality of our illogical and emotional monkey decision-making process. So you want to focus on creating the motions you want in your audience. You want to be very specific about your outcomes and limit the number of things you're trying to achieve with any messaging or meeting. Talk from the customer's perspective, always in terms of benefits and not features. And take at least as much time and effort around the soft aspects of your messaging, the visuals, the tone, and the narrative as you do on the actual content of the arguments itself. If you find selling and marketing as challenging as I did when I got started, I sincerely hope that this framework is useful to you and brings you the same level of success in those endeavors as I found. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. If you'd like to hear more advice like this, please like and subscribe through whatever podcasting service you use. This lets me know what kind of episodes resonate with you. Also, please join our community of entrepreneurs over at the Founders Alliance Facebook group. There's a link in the description. Till next time, ciao.